Hello and welcome to the Secret History of Art with Professor Noah Charney. Today's podcast is called Napoleon, the Emperor of Art Theft. When Citizen Vicar, one of the key members of the Art Theft Division of Napoleon's army, died, he bequeathed 1,436 artworks as a gift to his birthplace, the city of Lille, upon his death in 1843. Though most of the works were on paper, prints and drawings, this is an astonishing number. But there are two more facts about this bit of historical trivia that make it that much more surprising. First, almost all of these works had been stolen by him, personally, over the course of his service to the Napoleonic army, in which he and several other officers were charged with selecting, removing, boxing up, and shipping back to Paris art from the collections of those vanquished by La Grande Armée. Stealing over a thousand artworks is no small feat for a single person, even with the sort of unrestricted access his position with the army allowed. Impressive enough until we reach the second fact. Citizen Vicar had already sold most of the art he had stolen over the course of his post-war life, but still had those thousand-odd pieces left over to bequeath. In terms of quantity, Citizen Vicar, who would serve as keeper of antiquities at the Louvre Museum, is the most prolific art thief in history. But it is his boss, Napoleon Bonaparte, who is often crowned with that title. Organized looting by Napoleon's army began with the conditions of the armistice signed 17 May 1796 after he had defeated the Duke of Modena. The Duke of Modena undertakes to hand over 20 pictures. They will be selected by commissioners sent for that purpose from among the pictures in this gallery and realm, unquote. This set a precedent for payment and reparations in the form of artworks that would enrage and dismay surrendering peoples for centuries to come. Napoleon gave strict instructions for the proper removal of artworks. Special agents were ordered to use the army to commandeer art, arrange transport to France, and to make a precise inventory. This inventory was to be presented to the army commander and the government attaché to the army. Records of each confiscation were to be made in the presence of French army-recognized officials. Army transport was to be used to bring loot back to France, and the army was to cover the costs. In fact, these careful instructions served to veil the personal circumvention of them by Napoleon and his officers. The coyly named Commission of Arts and Sciences was led by an artist, Citizen Tinet, and consisted of a mathematician, Citizen Monge, a botanist called Citizen Toin, and another painter, Citizen Vicard, the most notorious of the lot, who proved to be a thief for the ages. Napoleon was not much of an art connoisseur, but luckily for him, and unluckily for those he subdued, Napoleon had a powerful and cunning art advisor, the first director of the Louvre Museum, Dominique Vivant Denon. Denon had served as an artist to the court of King Louis XV, gave drawing lessons to the king's mistress, Madame de Pompadour, acted as the ambassador for the court of Catherine the Great in Russia and in Naples. But he is best known as the man who turned the Louvre from a residential palace of the deposed French monarchy and into the world's most famous art gallery. He was the Louvre's first director, and a wing is still named after him. We owe much of how we think about museums today to Denon's legacy. He was the first to curate a museum by style, Baroque Italian paintings all in one room, for instance, to attempt to put together an encyclopedic collection covering the whole history of art, and to hang striking works so that they are framed by doorways and can be seen from a distance, drawing the eye, among other innovations. In a letter to Napoleon in 1803, the year after he became the first director of the Louvre, 
He described the need for this museum to feature the best works from, quote, the renaissance of the arts until our own time. In this way, the museum should provide, quote, a history course in the art of painting, presenting its collection with a character of order, instruction, and classification, unquote. He had become Napoleon's personal art advisor after having caught his eye when he accompanied the general in his 1798 Egyptian campaign, sketching pyramids while the cannons were still warm. Dunant saw Napoleon's attempt to reconquer the extent of the Roman Empire as a chance to bring together the greatest artworks of the vanquished territories. He drew up an art historian's dream wish list of works that he would love to have at the Louvre, and the Army's art theft unit, featuring the nimble-fingered citizen Vicar, sought to fill it. If Dunant was the Ur connoisseur, Napoleon was anything but. As Andrew Roberts explains in his new best-selling biography, Napoleon, A Life, the general's main criteria for whether he liked a work was its size, the bigger the better, and its naturalism, if it looked like real life, then it must be good. But this suited Dunant just fine. He was happy for Napoleon to be appropriating oversized academic realist works for his personal enjoyment, as long as the choicest, most important works went to the Louvre. Dunant would accompany Napoleon on most of his later campaigns, advising on which artworks to confiscate and send to the Louvre. His nickname was L'Emballeur, the Packer, for his constant supervision of the packing and shipping to Paris of looted artworks. Both Dunant and Napoleon were great enthusiasts of their looting schemes. For example, on the 1st of October, 1803, when 100 cases packed full of antiquities, including the Medici Venus and the Capitoline Venus, looted from Italy, arrived at the Louvre without a single object broken en route, Dunant excitedly made a speech, calling Napoleon, quote, the hero of our century, during the torment of war, required of our enemies trophies of peace, and he has seen to their conservation, unquote stealing art from defeated enemies as an act of conservation. When Napoleon became emperor in 1804, Dunant was made inspector general of French museums, ostensibly the director of all national collections. Both he and Napoleon understood that there was symbolic power in the capture and display of the cultural treasures of fallen nations. There was historical precedent for this. Art had been looted by conquering armies for as long as one could remember, but it was seen as acceptable because the ancient Romans did it. Indeed, the city of Rome was decorated with looted statues, including an outdoor sculpture garden once located to where the ghetto is now, all of its contents stolen. Looted art is like a battle flag displayed by the victors to demonstrate who they have vanquished, a more elegant and enduring version of exhibiting the severed heads of enemy generals. The Louvre, originally known as the Muséum Francais, then the Musée Central des Arts, then the Musée Napoléon, from 1803 to 1814, before becoming the Musée du Louvre, became a popular pilgrimage point for the culture traveler. The accumulation of looted art in Paris was a constant point of discussion in European publications and elicited a great deal of interest in what might be called illicit art tourism. In 1802... Henry Milton, an Englishman traveling to Paris specifically to see the loot-stocked Louvre, wrote, quote, Bands of practiced robbers who could not find an outlet for their talents in their homeland were shipped abroad to commit crimes under another less discreditable name. Hordes of thieves in the form of experts and connoisseurs accompanied their armies to take possession, either by dictation or naked force, of all that seemed to them worth taking. Napoleon's art theft unit was established with whitewashed intentions. 
In June 1794, he established a committee for the education of the people and proposed sending knowledgeable civilians with our armies with confidential instructions to seek out and obtain works of art in the countries invaded by us, unquote. On 18 July 1794, the following orders was issued to the army. The people's commissioners with the armies of the North and Sombre and Meuse have learned that in the territories invaded by the victorious armies of the French Republic in order to expel the hirelings of the tyrants, there are works of painting and sculpture and other products of genius. They are of the opinion that the proper place for them in the interest and for the honor of art is in the home of free men. Citizen Bicard and others in the unit oversaw the selection, boxing, and shipping of art from collections after ceasefires had been signed. But in practice, a lot more took place in terms of looting than was mandated by treaties. Napoleon at least put on the front of attempting to keep it in check. In an order on 22nd of April 1796, Napoleon stated, The commander-in-chief commends the army for its bravery and for the victories it has wrested from the enemy day after day. He sees with horror, however, the dreadful looting committed by pathetic individuals who only join their units when the fighting is over because they have been so busy looting. The soldiers paid little heed. Shortly thereafter, Napoleon issued this order. The commander-in-chief is informed that in spite of repeated orders, looting in the army continues and houses in the countryside are stripped, that any soldier found looting will be shot, and that no objects may be confiscated without written permission of specified authorities. But in the heat of the campaign, this was little heeded, least of all by Napoleon himself, who made a habit of showing up at galleries and choosing works that he liked for his own collection. Napoleon was as enthusiastic as Dunant when it came to looting. As he wound his way through the Italian peninsula, he extracted thousands of artworks from those who opposed him. Recognizing this inevitability, Turin and Naples determined not to engage in combat, and so they were far less looted than others who dug in to fight. Pope Pius VI agreed to terms with Napoleon in June 1796, but paid heavily to do so. In addition to the payment of 21 million livres in money and goods, approximately $60 million today, Article 8 of the Treaty of Tolentine stated that the Pope was to hand over a hundred pictures, busts, vases, or statues to be selected by the commissioners and sent to Rome, including in particular the bronze bust of Junius Brutus and the marble bust of Marcus Brutus, both on the capital, also 500 manuscripts of the choice of said commissioners. Adding insult to injury, the Vatican was required to pay for the transport of all of the art forced from it by the French for an astonishing sum of 800,000 livres, or $3.6 million today. Forty paintings were taken from Papal Dominion in Bologna and ten more from Ferrara. In total, the looted art of Bologna alone required 86 wagons to transport. Napoleon wrote with overt glee, quote, The commission of experts has made a fine hall in Ravenna, Rimini, Pesaro, Ancona, Loreto, and Perugia. The whole lot will be forwarded to Paris without delay. There is also the consignment from Rome itself. We have stripped Italy of everything of artistic worth, with the exception of a few objects in Turin and Naples, exclamation point. Walk through the Louvre today, and one can still find works that entered the collection thanks to Napoleon, Denon, Vicard and their like. While Leonardo's Mona Lisa was not looted by Napoleon, Vincenzo Perugia, the famous thief who stole it in 1911, did so because he thought it had been and wished to repatriate it to Italy. It was a reasonable guess. When you look at Jan van Eyck's Madonna with Canon van der Pelle, looted in 1794 from what was then called the Austrian Netherlands, modern Belgium, 
Consider the legacy of Napoleonic looting, but also the power of Dunant, the true mastermind behind the second largest art theft scheme in history, to which we owe a great deal in terms of how we think about art, the breadth of great collections, and how museums function. Napoleon and Dunant's legacies would likewise resonate through the 20th century and inspire the only art thief who outdid them in scope. Prior to World War I, international newspapers warned of the need never to repeat the art looting scene under Napoleon. That sounded well and good, but when the bullets started flying, theory was not put into practice. Art was looted, damaged, and destroyed during the First World War, but it was not until the Second that Napoleon was very much outdone. Hitler established his own art theft unit, the ERR Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, inspired by Napoleon, which focused on seizing art, books, and documents that were of value to the Third Reich. By some estimates, around 5 million cultural heritage objects, a term that includes fine art but extends well beyond it, were stolen, looted, or destroyed. While Napoleon and Dunant envisioned the Louvre as a sort of encyclopedic supermuseum, Hitler had a similar vision that was very nearly realized. He planned to rebuild the majority of his boyhood hometown of Linz, Austria, and make it into a citywide museum containing every important artwork in the world. He used the ERR to fill a wish list of his own, focused on his preference for Teutonic and Scandinavian artists and subject matter. The 7,000 choicest works, stolen from throughout conquered Europe and destined for the Linz Museum, were stored in a secret salt mine in the Austrian Alps that had been converted into a high-tech art warehouse. They were nearly all destroyed when a local SS leader determined to blow up the mine and its contents if he could not defend it against the encroaching allies. Part of this story is told in George Clooney's Monuments Men and in my book, Stealing the Mystic Lamb. While Napoleon oversaw the looting of tens of thousands of works, Hitler reached the hundreds of thousands, and far more met unseemly fates due to his policies and campaigns. If there is a hell for art thieves, then surely Hitler and Napoleon share the throne. <laughs>